This episode of the Organic BC podcast was funded by the BC Ministry of Agriculture and Food. Hello, this is the Organic BC podcast and I'm Jordan Marr. This episode, a conversation about limiting nutrient pollution in organic cropping systems. My guest is Sean Smuckler. Hi, my name is Sean Smuckler. I'm an associate professor at the University of British Columbia. I'm in the Faculty of Land and Food System, and I'm an agroecologist. I'm also the chair of Agriculture and Environment, a position supported by the BC Ministry of Agriculture. Sean and his colleagues completed research on this topic as a project under the last round of Canada's Organic Science Cluster. In this conversation, Sean talks about that research, and more generally about organic practices that can lead to nutrient pollution of our air and waterways, versus ones that tend to limit such outcomes. That's about all I need to say. Here's my conversation with Sean Smuckler. Sean Smuckler, thanks so much for joining me on the Organic BC podcast. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Sean, I invited you to be on the podcast to talk about nutrient management today because of some work that you're doing on nutrient management for the Organic Science Cluster. What is the Organic Science Cluster, Sean? Yeah, so the Organic Science Cluster is a federally funded program uh, to help organic farmers develop better strategies to produce uh, food in in Canada. It's a a national program. Uh, It's run by the Agriculture Agri-Food Canada. Uh, And yeah, we've been funded for the last few years. Uh, Actually, the the program uh, is uh, is over for us. We we were funded from uh, 2017 to 2019. And so we we uh, we're in the process now of of, uh, trying to seek additional funds from the organic science cluster. Okay, Sean, thank you for that. And we're going to be talking about the project that you worked on uh, for the Organic Science Cluster. It's called Vegetable Farm Sustainability Through Enhanced Nutrient Management Planning. Uh, we're going to get into depth in that a little later, but could you give us the gist of what your what this project was about? Yeah, our goal, with the primary goal with the project was to identify strategies that organic farmers could uh, implement that would improve their ability to grow crops in an economically viable way, at the same time reducing potential environmental impacts. And and maybe it's a good time right off the bat to talk about some of those impacts. I mean, this will be, I don't know, this a, a lot of farmers are already pretty familiar with this. But when we talk about nutrient nutrient management, what are we what are we worried about as far as the environmental impacts that that come from using ill considered nutrient management practices? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the primary concerns when we're, we're thinking about nutrient management are impacts to our, our water uh, resources and impacts to our, to our air and atmosphere. So uh, basically contributing to, to global warming. The nutrients that we're, we're really focused on is nitrogen and phosphorus. Those are the, the primary culprits of uh, pollutants that would end up in our waterways and nitrogen's the the primary source of uh, emissions to our atmosphere that cause global warming. So, Sean, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a stab at summarizing the issue with nitrogen, and then maybe I'm gonna ask you to do phosphorus. You can yeah. you can you can confirm that I have it right with nitrogen. But okay. essentially, when we whether we're in conventional cropping systems or organic, um, we 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 often we we know we need to make sure our, our crops are getting enough nitrogen and phosphorus for those crops to prosper. But in various ways, nitrogen, I'll, I'll, I'll deal with nitrogen, can, can leave the soil. When it leaves the soil into the atmosphere, essentially we're turning it into a gas that is about 300 times more potent as a greenhouse gas than, than CO2. It's often leaving the soil as nitrates and sometimes in other forms because it is water soluble in those forms, right? And then it ends up in our water and causes various concerns about water quality and other forms of pollution you you've done your homework jordan that's that's exactly right so i it doesn't actually have to leave uh the system as nitrate out to a waterway to get into the atmosphere we can actually have emissions directly from the farm field so uh as uh, microbial communities transform nitrogen from a organic 
source to a mineral source, that system actually can be quite leaky. And when the nitrogen is not being used efficiently, it can end up as nitrous oxide, as you as you stated, a gas that's 300 times more powerful than CO2. Right. Okay. So yeah. And I, I mean, I've always understood at least the basics of nitrogen pollution, but I, I don't understand what's happening with phosphorus as well. Could you, could you take a stab at, at how phosphorus ends up um, polluting the environment? Yeah. So phosphorus uh, can leave the, the soil, uh, the, the soil on the farm uh, through a couple of different pathways. Primarily uh, phosphorus would, would leave uh, through erosion, so being attached to soil particles and being washed off the surface of the soil and ending up in waterways. There's also uh, a pathway where the, the phosphorus can be leached out of the system and end up in uh, neighboring waterways that then causes the potential for, for eutrophication. So many waterways can be uh, limited by either nitrogen or phosphorus in terms of its productivity. When we add one of those two uh, nutrients, we can displace the, the aquatic ecosystem's equilibrium. And as a result, we can have algal uh, blooms that are actually then very hard to, to return to a stable state where the, the ecosystem is actually providing the conditions for a wide range of organisms and it ends up being really dominated by these these algal populations. Right. Okay. Thanks for that, Sean. So we are going to spend most of our conversation focusing on nutrient management in organic cropping systems. But I wanted to start with this question. When we think about a farmer trying to maximize their yields and and adding nutrients to their farm system in order to do that, what makes nutrient management in a conventional cropping system easier in some respects yeah so for a conventional system the farmer has the opportunity to purchase the fertilizers that they're going to use to provide nutrients to their crop uh, with very uh, precise uh, quantitative uh, evaluations of what's in the fertilizer itself so they can they can purchase a bag of fertilizer that has uh, the nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium clearly labeled, quantified by a lab. And this makes it so that they can actually supply the nutrients uh, to the crop that's specific to what the crop is gonna, going to need from, uh, from the, the farm field. It also makes it easier for the farmer to apply the nutrients when and where uh, the crop needs it. So having a bag of fertilizer with this, uh, with this uh, clearly quantitatively uh, assessed amount of nutrients in it gives the, the, the farmer the possibility to apply the nutrients later in the season or split the applications or provide it to right next to the, the crop where the, the roots are. Right. And then we're also talking about fertilizers that tend to be come right out of the bag in a form much more easily accessible by the plant in a lot of cases, aren't we? Yeah. So that, that fertilizer can be readily accessible quite quickly. Right. And at this point, I want to emphasize or, or at least acknowledge that in this work, we're going to talk about this, this organic science cluster project, you know, you're specifically focusing on, or at least referencing mixed, small scale, mixed vegetable farms. You know, this is, this is a, this is a farm that you see represented at, at say, many farmers markets. Farmers that are that are growing uh, a, a real diversity of crops. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So a diversity for small scale organic vegetable farmers is really key in many ways, but it adds this uh, very distinct challenge in terms of nutrient management. Okay, so let's let's talk about organic cropping systems then, and and you know we'll largely I guess be focused on on these small scale mixed vegetable uh, uh, farming systems. But um, wh what about uh, nutrient management in organic cropping systems is harder than, than the conventional uh, 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 system that we just discussed? Yeah. So if organic farmers are relying on uh, their soils, cover crops, compost, manure for supplying the fertility to, to, to their crops, those are all uh, sources that require biological activity to make the nutrients readily available. 
the biological process is being driven by everything from uh, earthworms to bacteria to fungi. So these are living systems that require additional thought and management to make them effective and efficient. Those systems are also reliant on the right conditions to, to make those nutrients readily available. So, you know, the changes in temperature or moisture have uh, really important drastic impacts on uh, the biological processes that make the nutrients available. So it's, it's definitely a lot more complex for organic farmers to ensure that the nutrients become available when the, the crop needs it. And then you add this additional complexity of multiple crops uh, in the same space, all needing nutrients at different times, but also in different ratios. And I think that's really an important component of this project and something that we really would like farmers to, to better understand is that not only do crops need nutrients in varying amounts, but the ratios are really important. So many of our vegetables will require uh, nitrogen and phosphorus in ratios that range from five units of nitrogen to one unit of phosphorus all the way up to 10. But when we're supplying those nutrients in terms of uh, the nitrogen and phosphorus uh, from manures or compost, the ratios are much lower. So in the end, if we're supplying our crops with nitrogen to meet the nitrogen needs by a compost or, or a manure, we can actually end up putting on almost twice as much phosphorus as the crop actually needs. Right, right. And then uh, this gets, gets, I would imagine, especially complicated when when you might be not varying your compost application rates enough for different crops. If you have more of a kind of generalized approach uh, to to adding compost to your whole farm system or, or even even fertilizers for that matter. So. So, OK, let's back up a second. Let's. um. Let's talk about an actual like a, 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 a organic fertilizer or amendment. I just I just want to like try and try and um, frame frame what you just said with an example. So you talked about the challenges of like relying on microbial activity to to kind of activate or make accessible some of the nutrients that we're, we want our, for our plants when we add, say, an organic uh, amendment. So let's just say I'm going to choose like feather meal since it's kind of simpler because it's it's typically just only giving you nitrogen. Like it's often rated at like 1100, right? Could could you use that as an example of like so I want to I want to make sure that you know my baby greens crop is is getting the nitrogen it's going to need and I'm relying on feather meal. Can you can you use feather meal to 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 kind of highlight what's happening in the soil and why why it gets tricky for me to get the right amount, not too much, not too little? Yeah, so feather meal is a good example of an organic fertilizer that is is being used, and one uh, one that we've used in 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 this project to demonstrate uh, how combinations of of different fertility sources can be used. So feather meal, a lot of the nitrogen, and you just mentioned that most of the nutrients in the feather meal is actually nitrogen. Uh, most of that is still in a organic form, meaning that it still needs to be transformed by microbes into a mineral uh, form of, of fertilizer, of nitrogen, that the plants can readily uptake. So there's evidence that plants can take up organic forms, but in, in very small amounts. Most of the, the forms that plants take up are either ammonium or nitrogen both mineral forms of the nitrogen. Therefore, you know, for the feather meal to be effective, we need the microbes to transform it into those, those mineral forms. Okay. So then if we think about like my first salad crop of the year, right? When it's, when it's a lot colder, the soil is a lot colder, colder and the air is a lot colder. Um, if I'm trying to use feather meal to meet my crops, nitrogen needs, I might be inclined to add a lot more feather meal knowing that it's going to be slower for the microbes to to break it down because they'll be less biologically active is is like is that a is that a fair framing of it and then is the risk there that ultimately 
there's nitrogen that gets broken down later that is at risk of being lost into in, you know through through the soil yeah i think that's a, a great example and i think that's the challenge that we see with feather mill or other uh, organic inputs um i mean we we see that with mineral fertilizers as well it's the uh the the challenge is is trying to get uh the nutrients available quickly at the beginning of the season and so so many farmers will end up over applying to sort of compensate for the the conditions that aren't really conducive for that in the, particularly in the the early season okay so we we spent a couple of minutes talking about the specific exa- you know about organic amendments or or fertilizers that often come in a bag i also want to talk about cover co- cover crops and composts but before I move on from from fertilizers, I just I, there was a note in your uh, project summary about um, how there's been very little work assessing the environmental impacts from some of these organic fertilizers. Can you expand on on that a little bit? Yeah, I think uh, uh, most of the research that's been done on organic fertility management has been sort of these organic conventional comparisons. We <clears throat> we haven't spent much time or effort trying to hone the organic uh, approach to, to nutrient management. So, you know, we, we don't have really great comparisons between different organic <clears throat> methodologies and their environmental outcomes. And I think that's one of the, the important aspects of this project is that we have been measuring some of the, the environmental impacts. And my understanding is that we organic producers need to understand that that um, using organic inputs doesn't doesn't uh, mean we're not risking environmental pollution if we apply in too great in too great amounts. Correct? That's absolutely correct. And actually, there's there's evidence that suggests that organic systems can actually be much more leakier than uh, than conventional systems. In fact, I was just reading one study that indicated that uh, nitrogen could be 37% more leakier in a, in an organic system than conventional. And would that have to do with the fact that in a conventional system with inputs that are much more, sorry for the funny language, but just much more ready to be taken up by the plant, just, you know, essentially water soluble for the plant, um, that we can be more targeted and therefore add less in the first place. Um, is, is that is that one of the reasons why organic might be actually worse in terms of how much is lost from what we're adding? Uh, it, it can be one of the reasons for sure. Um, yeah, the other, yeah, I think it comes down to the complexity of the management in organic systems and the reliance on the, the biological process. So I, I, for sure, there are organic farmers that probably have this dial that have created uh, a system that is biologically efficient and they're ensuring that those leakages are are not happening but if it 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 does make it more challenging to 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 develop that system so that a typical approach may not be uh creating an efficient way of using nutrients and then at the end of the season we have too much or in the beginning of the season we have too little um and overall, I think what's what's what we're definitely seeing is that uh, organic producers are are building up this phosphorus pool and the potential to have environmental harm. Okay, let's talk about. I was going to move on to um, compost, so you just provided a great segue. Let's talk about that phosphorus pool that you just referenced. So, when I in my general question, I want to ask you is like, what are the challenges and limitations of using compost in your nutrient management? Um, so I don't know if you want to start bro- answering that broadly or get specifically to the to the phosphorus pool that you just mentioned. Yeah, I guess. Uh... We, we did touch on a little bit the, some of the, the, the broad challenges of just the reliance on compost. One of them is the, the, the challenge of supplying nutrients at uh, variable rates for the, the many different crops that might be uh, in a particular field. Um, so that would either require uh, some specialized uh, management or additional labor um, to make sure that the crops are getting the targeted amounts of, of compost that will be required to meet the nutritional 
needs to, to meet their nutritional needs. Um, but beyond that, certainly it's the, uh, the ratios of nitrogen to phosphorus that I was talking about before. I don't know if you want me to talk about that again, but I think that's, that's sort of the, the critical issue with using compost, particularly if the compost is being generated using animal waste. So some of the, the higher quality compost that we've uh, sampled certainly has a, a fairly low uh, nitrogen to phosphorus ratio because it's being generated from animal waste. Uh, I, I think I, I, I know you have referenced this already in the conversation. I think it's worth expanding on. So first of all, like we want to, this is, this is a BC based podcast. And the reality is that there's, there's a lot of compost being made and uh, made in BC and made available, which is, which is a wonderful thing if it's used responsibly. But the reason is we have a very large livestock industry in BC, correct? Like there's a lot of um, manure being generated by our poultry industry and our dairy industry, among others. And so we're turning a lot of it into compost, but we're, but, but that compost uh, has a, has a nitrogen to phosphorus ratio that can cause problems. If farmers are applying compost to meet their nitrogen needs, I think I'm correct. Can you explain why that causes a problem with phosphorus? Yeah, that, that is absolutely correct. So uh, the nitrogen to phosphorus ratio that plants require is much higher than what's in a compost made from animal manure because animal manure has a much lower nitrogen to phosphorus ratio. So if we are applying to meet the, the crop's nitrogen needs, we're putting on too much phosphorus if we're using this animal-based uh, compost or manure. Right. And I happen to know from a previous podcast that you've had others in your lab working on this specific problem. Amy Norgard was a master's student who completed a project on this topic. And essentially one of the, I guess, results or recommendations out of her work um, was that if farmers are going to use compost for nutrient management, they should be applying to meet their plants' phosphorus needs and consider additionally applying some nitrogen-based organic fertilizers to top up for the nitrogen needs. That was one of the conclusions that uh, Amy's study came up with. Uh, I think the other, the other source of nitrogen would be cover crops, which I think would probably be... Uh, a, a really important source of, of nitrogen because you're, you're fixing atmospheric nitrogen for free. Okay, well, let's move over to cover crops then. So maybe we could start on, on a positive note. Hey, everyone. It's Jordan cutting in real quick because I want to tell you about some events coming up hosted by Organic BC that you might like to know about. It is February 1st of 2023 as I record this, and in the next six weeks, there will be a number of regional gatherings in person around the province, as well as a couple of online events. And you can learn about all of them at organicbc.org events. Okay, back to the interview. Okay, well, let's move over to cover crops then. So maybe we could start on, on a positive note. Um, uh, you know, describe describe how farmers could be using cover crops to, to help with their nutrient management? Yeah, cover crops would be a really important source of uh, nitrogen uh, as it either, uh, cover crops can either fix nitrogen from the atmosphere if they're a leguminous cover crop or a mix with legumes in it because of the symbiotic relationship that those cover crops have with the bacteria that can uh, take atmospheric nitrogen and exchange that with the, the crop for uh, the nitrogen that it fixes. The other way that cover crops can help with nitrogen management is to capture the nitrogen that's left over in the field at the end of the season. So if we, we did actually over apply or more nitrogen was made available during the production season than the, the, the crop actually could, could utilize, this nitrogen then could be uh, taken up by the, the cover crop at the end of the season, securing it for the next season. So over the winter, basically storing it in its tissue, and then in the, the spring, the farmers can turn that cover crop in, make that nitrogen available for the next, the next production season. 
So, Sean, you've just described kind of an ideal uh, behind using a leguminous cover crop, right? And that that ideal you described is like very well known, especially I would say I would assume uh, with organic farmers. Um, but I, I, I really want to get into some of the limitations and challenges of trying to improve, to, to, to like take care of your nutrient management this way. Um, and, and one thing that comes to mind that I would love to have you speak to is just, uh, I guess timing, like in British Columbia, like one challenge is I, I understand as a general rule of thumb, very general rule of thumb is that ideally you're going to get that post-harvest leguminous crop planted 60 days before last frost to, to really let it establish properly and do its work. And I find as a mixed veggie grower, that's very hard. And a lot of my best laid plans for getting cover crops in at the end of the season are kind of ruined by very challenging timing in a busy part of the year. Yeah, it's, uh, it is a, it, it is pro- probably the biggest challenge for uh, farmers, regardless of what crop they're growing making sure that they've got enough time to get that cover crop well established it's uh it doesn't really do much if your if your cover crop is is looking weak or small as it goes into the winter it's not really going to be capturing much nitrogen out of the soil or out of the atmosphere and certainly not providing much in the in the in the spring so yeah the the short production season that we have in British Columbia is the primary challenge for getting those cover crops going and so we have to come up with innovative ways to ensure that those cover crops are are getting established with enough time to to do their thing and can you can you speak to any innovative ways of doing so yeah well certainly there's there's some uh good work that's come out of agassi in terms of relay cropping so uh establishing a a cover crop in the existing cash crop before it gets harvested so it's got enough time to to really develop uh alternatively is to try to to extend the the production season so that we we we're getting in earlier on our ground getting our cash crop established and then getting it out. So we do have uh, the time uh, to, to, to get that cover crop going. And actually one of the, the research projects that we have been working on is different overwintering strategies using plastic uh, tarps and spring uh, strategies using plastic tarps to basically give the farmer that tool to, to get going earlier in the spring so that they can then get the the cover crop going in the subsequent uh, fall. So, okay, I I, want to go in a couple different directions here, but I guess one question I have is when we are cover cropping to to fix nitrogen into the soil, how are farmers doing or what are the challenges around getting the timing right? And I'm not so much thinking about, you know, getting that crop turned under with enough time for that crop to break down before you put your cash crop in. I'm thinking more about stuff like how long can the nitrogen realize from a, from a leguminous crop sit in, in soil that has been turned over before we start to lose it, um, you know, in the same way we lose other forms of nitrogen that we add to the soil? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. I think that's, that's, uh, that timing issue is, uh, is one that's really important. And I think one that we, we need to get a much better handle on. So understanding for a particular soil type, for a particular, uh, climate condition in BC, what is the mineralization process for the, the cover crop? What is that transformation from an organic nitrogen to a mineral nitrogen looking like? And, you know, what can we expect in terms of when we might uh, maximize that mineralization and then lose the nitrogen uh, before the, the crop gets it? So, yeah, I think there's a lot of work that we still need to do on, on the, the timing and understanding of that biological process. And I mean, I think probably what, what is uh, some of the most exciting work right now is looking at how we can enhance the biological community to make sure that it's doing uh, that process as effectively and efficiently as possible. Sean, if I may, I'd like to ask, um, I'd like to ask a couple of hard questions, hard in terms of like, in ter- in term, and just, I just mean in terms of like, like contemplating them as a, as farmers or as a researcher like yourself is, 
can be can feel a little bit uncomfortable. So, for example, like your work that we're talking about has focused on this on small scale mixed vegetable systems, right? And and a lot of those, those so we're talking about small farms of less than five acres that in order like they're operating on a model and I'm saying this with confidence because this has been the model I've operated on for years where you want to use like every last square foot of your small farm um, to, to generate the products you need to try and make a living. And so in organic small scale cropping systems, that approach is kind of throwing away this notion, an original principle of organic farming of like fallowing with cover crops, you know, because if you have more land, you could choose, you know, you can choose to have that next field being being grown with a leguminous crop all season. And now now that's where you're going to put your fields in a small scale system. That's I know so many farms where that's not being done. And that's why they're relying on composts on end of year, quick cover crops you know, to try and, to try and work that into the system. It's why they're relying on organic fertilizers. I'm just, I'm just wondering if like, do we need to reconsider that? I mean, ultimate, like, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on whether the ultimate sustainability of this approach to small scale vegetable production that I think has made it easier to be viable economically but I'm wondering if you have any concerns about the environmental cost, given all the challenges we're talking about in making sure that nutrient management is have it happening properly. Yeah, well, that's a great, great question, Jordan. And that's something that I'm hoping our lab will be able to address going forward. We've actually submitted a proposal to look at just that. Uh, your idea of growing a cover crop during the uh, during the summer is a tried and true methodology basically a, a green manure to, to produce your own nutrients on site uh, is tried and true, but incredibly challenging for uh, farmers who are faced with high real estate prices. Every, mm -hmm. every piece of, of ground really needs to be productive. That, uh, the, the calculus on it, the math that uh, farmers are doing right now um is basically telling them that they got to keep all their ground in production at all times. But that math might change when we start to consider increasing uh, cost of, of fertilizer or greater demand for reducing environmental impact. And one of the, the environmental impacts that we haven't talked about yet is the fact that many of our organic farmers are actually mining nutrients from other sites. So if an organic farmer is, is trucking in nutrients in the form of compost or manures, the embodied environmental impact really should be accounted for uh, in the transportation and the production of the, uh, the, the animals and the, the composting process that, that went uh, uh, along the way to, to, to get those nutrients to the site. And, for sure, that's not being accounted for. So having a green manure, while it's incredibly uh, costly to take land out of production, once we start, start to incorporate some of the externalities that, that are not being accounted for, might look very different. The, the, the balance on that might look very different. It also might look very different when we start doing some long-term uh, math when we start accounting for uh, the health of the soil over over the the long term and the productivity that away uh, from from developing uh, better soil health on site. So thank you for that thoughtful answer. It sounds to me what I heard is that you do have concerns about the long-term sustainability of these intensive small-scale models, but it also sounds like you think farmers can be forgiven just because of the overall economic environment they're working in. Well, I don't, I don't know if it matters whether whether I think that you can be forgiven or not. I think we we as a society have to figure out how to make all of our food production more uh, efficient. We we're we're trying to balance these incredibly complex trade-offs, and uh, you know we're we're kind of up against the wall now, where we can't we can't continue to just uh, ignore the environmental externalities. So, 
Yeah, I, I, I'm not giving the farmers a pass here, Jordan. Good. I'm no. I'm glad. And now let's let's take one more. Let's do one more hard question. Let's let's address a sacred cow. Okay. Um, you said earlier that there is work showing that actually, you know, in conventional systems, um, that 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 using conventional fertilizers, in at least in some contexts, is less uh, uh, wasteful in terms of like leaching. Uh, than, than some organic practices. And I've long wondered if we didn't just have to deal with the reality that, you know, systems like certified organic have to be pretty black and white in terms of how they're administered, if we wouldn't ultimately be better off as organic farmers, reconsidering that maybe there, that there's, there's, an, there's a use case for maintaining all of our organic practices we already use as far as green manures and cover crops and and composting, but but perhaps reconsidering that maybe we should be entertaining the use of certain synthetic fertilizers that would allow us to be much more targeted um, and ultimately reduce the type of environmental pollution we're concerned about. I'm wondering if you've thought about that at all. Yeah, I mean, the, the thought definitely has crossed my mind. Um, I, as an agroecologist, uh, my, my first impulse is to seek ways that are more efficient ecologically than uh, to utilize uh, synthetic fertilizers that have a really high energy cost to them, uh, both in terms of their, their synthesis and their transport. So I, 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 I would push instead of changing the, the organic approach to include synthetic fertilizers, I would rather see us uh, push to get organic farmers to better understand the complexity of their system and to really manage for uh, efficiency. That, I think, would be um, my, my first approach before you know, going, going uh, to the, the synthetic fertilizer route. Fair enough. Okay, so... We are almost going to start getting to the, the goals and results of your project, Sean, to yeah. wrap things up. But I had one more kind of practical question, which yeah. is um, I just I just want to review with you like the best strategies for farmers to be better aware of the impacts of their nutrient management yeah. um, practices. So uh, you already mentioned that if you can get that cover crop, leguminous cover, cover crop planted in time, um, you know, you're, 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 you're gonna, you're gonna help reduce the likelihood of, of leaking leakage, um, by having that crop take up excess nutrients over the winter. Um, I, I for sure wanted to ask you about the post-harvest nitrate test and it's, it's role in, in mm. measuring our impacts. And if there's anything else you would point to as far as strategies for, for, um, keeping, keeping track of how we're doing. Yeah, I, I think the, the post-harvest nitrate test is a really important one. To It gives us a really good indication of what's left over in terms of the, the nitrogen uh, after the production season. So we want to make sure that uh, if we, we are creating an efficient system, we want to make sure that that is, is as low as possible. And if there is a fair amount of uh, nitrogen left over, we want to make sure that we've got that cover crop in place with enough time to, for the roots to get to where that nitrogen is to capture it. Otherwise, it's going to end up in our in our waterways. The other the other thing that I think farmers should be really conscious of is uh, their phosphorus. So you know, making sure that they're doing uh, a phosphorus test uh, from year to year, and maybe not every year, but you know, tracking how phosphorus is changing. And getting a handle on how their uh, their organic matter is is changing. I think that if I, if I had to pick one indicator of, of soil health that farmers could could use as a metric to determine how their uh, the trajectory of their their soil is going, I would I would say let's let's look at the the soil organic matter uh, levels and make sure that you know those aren't going down and they, you know we've got something above uh, 3% at least. And, uh, and, and that those phosphorus pools aren't moving up with the organic matter. Cause that's, that's typically, uh, what, what, we, what we see if farmers are building organic matter, they may be building that, that phosphorus pool as well. Now it strikes me that when we're talking about post-harvest nitrate tests, 
you know, we've been talking about diversified small scale cropping systems, okay, a farm with 20, 25 different vegetables. I think a pretty standard practice for a farmer uh, with limited, who's on a small scale and therefore often with limited finances and financial resources um, is to approach soil tests where you take, you com- your sample is a combination of six different places on your farm right. um, to just give you a general picture. But it strikes me that that's not going to give you the information. That'll give you a general picture of your post-harvest nitrates. But you may, there's a limitation there because you may have one or two or three or four different kinds of crops where you're un- you unknowingly have, a, you know, a higher, you know, a concerning amount of post-harvest nitrates. You're not going to see that if you take that, that approach. And yet taking 25 post-harvest nitrate samples could get pretty expensive pretty quick. Yeah. I think it's, uh, it's really important to recognize that, that, that the, the post-harvest nitrate, uh, analysis can be highly variable across a a field and particularly across a farm if you have different crops. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think trying to be as precise as possible with uh with that sampling is important but yeah the costs certainly get in the way um okay so sean we're gonna we're gonna wrap up just by talking about this the the project that you did for the organic science cluster and i think i'm gonna let you lead that this part of the conversation i mean i have your project goals written down here but but maybe i could just start with a very general question can you can you summarize um what came out of that work that wrapped up a couple years ago yeah, so uh, our uh, approach was to, to look at different nutrient management strategies uh, on two experimental sites, but also uh, across a diversity of uh, soils and uh, climatic conditions in different geographical re- regions. And some of the, the key outcomes of that project were identifying that, indeed, we are seeing some increases in in phosphorus pools we're also seeing some farmers that are using uh nutrients to the point where there are uh high nitrate levels but for the most part the the farmers in the study were were not um we certainly saw some of the benefit of trying to mix uh organic fertilizers with compost to to ensure that we we're meeting both the nitrogen and phosphorus needs without uh, impacting uh, the the phosphorus pool. The the real important outcome, though, I think, is that the the results are are really site specific. That um, in the different regions where we did this analysis, access to to compost and the quality of compost varied enormously, and so the the bottom line in terms of whether it is cost effective to use a compost or a certified organic fertilizer or a mix uh, really was dependent on on the region. And uh, to make to make things even more complicated, it really depended on the, the conditions of the, the, the site itself. So um, while we have definitely illustrated some some clear uh, uh clear uh, results uh, from the project it, it's one of those situations where I, I, we would we would leave the, the information with the farmer and ask the farmer to critically interpret that for their own conditions to, to uh, make sure that they can take those messages understand their their access to, to compost and fertilizers and their current soil organic matter levels and their ability to get cover crops going and, and, and make their own interpretation. One of the stated goals was online tool development to help farmers with this. Did anything come out of that in that regard? Or could you see, do you, do you see anything coming down the line? Yeah. So, uh, Hannah Whitman's lab is working on a tool called light farm and some of the outcomes of this project have been contributing to the development of a nutrient management uh, component of that tool. So Light Farm is specifically designed for uh, small-scale farmers to be able to better manage their system. So uh, nutrient management is a key component of that. So we've made some some contributions to the development of that, that part of the application. And 
yeah, hopefully in the next couple of years, uh, we can see a deployment of that so that farmers can uh, better track the nutrients that are going on and the results of, uh, you know, what those nutrient applications have been. And, and just to make the, the ease of, of, uh, of managing the complexity of the system easier. Sean, is there anything else you want to say about, about your work, this work or nutrient management in general before we wrap up? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that there's uh, a lot of farmer, there are many farmers out there who are doing a great job in terms of nutrient management. And ideally, we would be trying to learn from them how to, to take what they're doing and deploy it into to different situations. I think there's um, some, some great examples of highly efficient organic uh, production. And we just have to make it so that the, the rest of the, the community can, can learn and, and deploy those, those strategies in their own system. And where, where can listeners learn more about, about your work on this? Your, your, and your, you and people in your, in your, you, you and your colleagues, essentially. Yeah, I think uh, I would refer people to our website, the Sustainable Agricultural Landscapes Lab. We have uh, some of our results up online there in terms of uh, some of the presentations that we've done, some of the, the papers that have come out of it, some of the fact sheets and some of the podcasts that have been developed for, for this project and others. Sean Smuckler, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to, to explain all of this. I really enjoyed this conversation. Well, Jordan, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for uh, paying attention to this really important topic. One thing a lot of farmers are feeling lately is stress about extreme weather events that have become increasingly common the last number of years. For this season of the podcast, I called up some of my colleagues around the province to talk about how extreme weather has affected their farm and how they are attempting to adapt to what's starting to feel something like a new normal. I'm Melissa Belter. I run Plenty Wild Farms in Pemberton, BC. We're a certified organic, highly diversified vegetable farm. Has extreme weather impacted your production in any way in the last number of years? Yeah. I guess most notably in 2021, we had the the heat dome, which was probably the most extreme heat we've experienced, getting into like 43 degrees. And that significantly affected our production that year. We had, you know, crops that just failed to germinate in the heat and it was too late for us to reseed them. We had like, you know, tomatoes, like the fruit was aborting and we were we had like weeks where we didn't have any tomatoes. So, yeah, there was definitely a lot of uh, production issues that year. Um, but it's just so variable from year to year, like the, this year, 2022, the year after, you know, we're expecting the same thing. We're trying to get prepared for heat. And then we had a super cold spring where it was the total opposite of that so it's just like very unpredictable weather and it just seems like what's that saying it's like the new normal is no normal <laughs> is kind of what we're experiencing so yeah it's hard to hard to kind of plan for for what to grow uh when you just don't know what's going to happen <laughs> and so on the subject of adaptation how mm -hmm. are you attempting to adapt in your operation to this kind of new normal of seeming unpredictability yeah, I would say one thing that we have done, which I know not everyone has the has the option of doing, is we've invested in greenhouses. We're really fortunate to like own our own land and we're not leasing land so we can put in that infrastructure. But that is something that kind of like hedges hedges our bets a bit. We can we can like last year we were able to go to market at the usual time because we had stuff growing in the greenhouse when all the stuff in the field wasn't ready yet. Are you talking about unheated tunnels or are you getting into climate control like more more? Um... Yeah, we got into climate control. So we had one greenhouse which was not heated um, and we now have three greenhouses and they all have have heat in them. So yeah, we were able to, um, you know, put tomatoes and cucumbers in and have them ready 
much earlier than we would in an unheated tunnel. And we also had things like interplanted, like fennel and cilantro and lettuce. So we had stuff that we could bring to market in the early spring, like I said, when the stuff in the field wasn't ready. Do you see, are there any like um, policy decisions or programs that you would like to see any of your governments enacting to try and help farmers uh, adapt and just deal with all of this? I mean, thinking of like the greenhouses, so the heat source is, it's actually propane, which we would love to not have propane in there. Um, Cause you know, that's, that's not, uh, it's, you know, contributing to the climate crisis problem we're having. Yeah. So I would like to see research in, you know, in different ways of, of heating, not just for ourselves in greenhouses, but like different ways of heating buildings that are, you know, commercially viable and commercially available. When we were looking into heat sources, there's a lot of cool stuff out there. There's like different kind of like geothermal systems. There's, I think there was like a wood pellet system, but none of them are really like commercially available on our scale. Or if they are, it's like not really proven and it's enormously expensive. So I would like to see more research and um, I guess development of those kind of technologies so that we don't have to go to this this propane heat source. What else? I know that the government has been providing funds so people can um, work on like nitrogen, reducing nitrogen use and like cover cropping, uh, rotational grazing, which is awesome. But it's kind of a kick in the pants because you have to have not been doing any of those things to access the funding. So it's like we cover crop on our farm and we can't so we can't utilize that to do more cover cropping or I don't know. So I guess if there's like a program to reward people that are already doing good things <laughs> that are making a positive contribution to to this climate issue would be nice. <laughs> Alyssa, thanks so much. No problem. All right, that's all for now. Before I say goodbye, I want to acknowledge the support of the BC Ministry of Agriculture and Food for the production of this episode, and to tell you that all the music we use in this podcast is courtesy of jazz flutist Matt Eckel. Thanks, Matt. All right, it's time to say goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.